Welcome to the Wellward Way podcast. I'm Dr. Donish, the medical director of Wellward Medical here in Lexington, Kentucky, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. James Escaloni, also called Dr. Macaroni by some. <laughs> Just to remember me better. Uh, this podcast is geared towards our patient population, where we are we are empowering them to under, have a greater understanding about their pain, their functionality and uh, the things that cause them pain as they age. The goal is to empower individuals to take control over their health and demystify the pain process. Today we are talking about the whole reason the Wellward Way started, which is the opioid epidemic and the impact it's had on people's lives, but moreover, the way that it has reshaped medicine away from the things that have sustainability when it comes to managing painful conditions and aging uh, and towards a methodology that really not only doesn't work, but actually does a lot of harm to people. Yeah, this is a big topic all around Kentucky right now. And I think a big thing has been people have been looking at shows kind of like Dope Sick on Hulu. And I know when I first watched that, I thought, man, those pharmaceutical companies are just devils. Look what they're doing to these people. And then I mentioned something to you, like, hey, is, is that kind of true? Because you people in the radio land don't understand that Dr. Donish was the key medical witness in the state of Oklahoma versus Purdue Pharmaceuticals, so he knows a little bit of the insight. And it was actually Purdue. It, it was a number of pharmaceuticals. It wasn't just Purdue. Two of the companies settled, and then it went to court over uh, Jensen Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, that's a big deal. And so I still remember asking him, about was this true and the look that he gave me and said this is actually much worse than what you see on TV blew my mind I couldn't believe thinking about that so that's why we want to talk about this more because this is the effect that's had on the entire population of not only the United States but especially Kentucky because well that's where those companies really targeted first vulnerable populations and it was not good but we'll get into this a little bit more so that you guys at home can understand what exactly is going on and why Wellward Medicine really is moving forward to try to change the scape of everything. We are the flagship to make things different in this country. Yeah, the, the statistic that often gets quoted is the number of people who have died of overdose or the number of people who have uh, ongoing addiction. And these are just uh, canaries in the cave because these are statistics that are easy to follow and they're remarkable. And I don't, I don't want to marginalize them because it's the equivalent of a commercial airliner uh, crashing every single day. That's the number of people that actually um, die in, uh, from an opioid overdose. But, but those are, for the CDC estimates that for every one overdose, there's over 800 people who are misusing or abusing opioids. And th- these are old statistics. This goes back to about 10, 10 or 12 years ago. The numbers have even gotten worse over time. Uh, I think in 2021, uh, we actually saw we, we saw the highest number of people die from an opioid overdose. Almost uh, over 100,000 people uh, died last year from from uh, opioid overdoses, and mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a record number. At this point, the tally is somewhere over almost a million people have passed away from uh, some some form of. Uh, uh, overdose, uh, most of which has been related to either opioids, heroin, or now the synthetic opioid that's flooding the market, fentanyl. 
Well, one of the questions that I've always thought about is, how did it get this bad? Why is it that all of a sudden these physicians just out of nowhere start giving everybody these pills that turned out to be one of the worst things that could happen in the past 20 years? You know, the, re the reality is that if we go back 40, 50 years, <clears throat> quality of life and pain was kind of a secondary endpoint to longevity. I mean, the focus was always how do we, how do we help people live longer lives, but the process of doing so was never really a comfortable process. I mean, when you get a procedure done or you undergo uh, surgery, the main intent at healthcare at that point was survival. It wasn't necessarily how you got through it, and even if you got through it, there wasn't a lot of attention put on how do we, how do we maximize or optimize your quality of life. And so the whole focus on figuring out better ways to treat pain was really justified. It's just that the movement got usurped by special interests that had uh, a financial motive in promoting a specific way of addressing pain, and that was through opioids, through pharmaceuticals. So the messaging developed, evolved, or the narrative evolved to state that pain is not, it's not a complicated issue. It's a simple condition, and it has a very simple uh, one-size-fits-all solution in the form of a pill, and that's opioids. And that's just, there's so many layers of fallacy to that statement that, uh, that the complexity of it became overwhelming. And the conversation shifted away from a very elegant way of, of evolution, which was this multidisciplinary approach focusing on mental health, on physical movements, and on the biology of pain. And all of that seemed to get brush, brushed under the carpet when opioids became the more prominent way of addressing these issues. That's pretty interesting. And so from hearing that, if I was a physician and it, I had somebody who was in pain and they weren't gonna probably exercise, they weren't gonna take care of themselves, change their diet, and I didn't have access to somebody, kind of like what we do at Wellward, where we really figure out where the pain is, that's a pretty simple solution. So I can understand psychologically as the clinician is trying to say, I wanna help this person, here's well, and the pill. And it's, and it's more nefarious than that because wh what we're looking at is a medication that is well-established that has beneficial effects for very short periods of time, meaning when people first start to take a, a, an opioid, they're going to feel great. It's the main reason that we use them in post-traumatic or post-surgical management of pain. It's because it works really well for a short period of time. The damage is that the long-term effect becomes invisible because you're, you're focusing, the patient, the physician, they're both focusing on the immediate effects, which is people are more mobile, they're more functional, they feel great. Uh, and over time, as, as they continue to take the medication, I always say it's like a knife that you use and it dulls as you're using it. So the more you use it, the more blunt it becomes. And the reason for that is that our bodies are in a constant state of evolution and growth, meaning that it's, it's always seeking a balance point. And if it's constantly being bombarded by pain signals, but for some reason those pain signals aren't being processed in the normal, natural way in the brain, uh, the brain is going to adapt and it's going to adjust to the existence, the coexistence of pain and these medications that help suppress pain. So it's kind of like the way I explain it is, 
there are really two parts of the brain that, you're, you're, that are relevant. There's the part of the brain that just sees pain signals coming in, and there's a part of the brain that cares that they're there. Uh, the part of the brain that opioids affect are, is the part that cares about the existence of pain, not the part that sees the pain. That part's already seeing the existence of the pain. But if the caring side is not giving feedback to the, to the seeing side or the message receiving side, then that message re receiving side of the brain or the regulatory part of the brain starts to think that message wasn't received, I need to turn the volume up. So the longer they're taking this medication in the context of pain, the more the body is adapting to, to increase the amplitude or the loudness of that pain signal. So it gets to a point where uh, the moment you take that medication away or the levels of medication dip in the body and those filters no longer exist, now the caring side of the brain is bombarded by this excessively loud uh, barrage of sound that is intolerable. So from a standpoint of a patient who's been on these medications for a long time, it's going to be especially rough for them to get off because you've got the psychological component of that uh, because there's a little bit of a feel-good element to that, right? Well, yeah, so it, it's, it's kind of a catch-22 that creates this cognitive dissonance in, in patients, meaning that what they believe is reinforced by a reality that they keep seeing every single day, but it's not a belief that's premised in truth. What I mean by that is when this person who's been used to taking the medication on a regular basis, the moment they miss a dose, they feel like the pain is astronomical, it's intolerable, and it, and it truly is. It's not, a, it's not a physiologic level of pain, meaning that somebody who's been regularly exposed to pain medication, if you take that medication away, it's, it's more painful for that person than it would be for, any, for the average person. If they get a paper cut, it's going to feel worse simply because their brain has adapted to the presence of that medication. And if that level of medication is not there, then they actually feel a higher sensitivity of pain. So then the moment they take the medication again, they suddenly feel the surge of relief. And the, the distortion in the mind is that, well, my condition has evolved. My condition has gotten worse. Whatever the original damage was in my body is now worse than it was before I ever started these medications. And that's why the pain is so intolerable, when in fact, that may have happened, but for definitive reasons, their brain has also adapted to the presence of the medication, and it's built workarounds to try to see or perceive the pr presence of pain because pain is a danger signal. It's always going to be a danger signal for the brain, something that it's always, it always needs to be attentive to. Now, for these people who are on these medications, a question I think about is that there's naturally occurring opioids in your body that your body depends on, not just in pain areas, but in other organs, correct? Correct. So the, the complexity of the opioid system in the body is that you have opioid receptors literally from head to toe. So you have a high concentration of them in the nervous system that regulates pain or filters pain, but you also have them in your gut. You have them in your immune cells. You have them in your heart, in, your, in the, the centers of your brain that control breathing. That's why when people die of an overdose, it's because they actually stop breathing. All of these areas of the body have opioid receptors, and not only do they have specific opioid receptors, 
there are specific opioid molecules within the body that uh, trigger them selectively. When you apply an external source of an opioid, you lose that regulation. So an opioid doesn't care what kind of a receptor exists, it's gonna activate that receptor. And by opioid, I mean the ones that you take by mouth. You also have natural opioids. They're called things like endorphins or enkephalins or dynorphins. And these are different types of molecules that target these different receptors in different ways. And so they have a very, they have a lot of finesse in the regulation of different systems in your body. When, when an opioid that you take by mouth or you inject by, through an IV is received in the body, it doesn't discriminate among these receptors. So all of these systems have to adjust to that external source of, of an opioid. And it's very difficult for them to maintain this regulation. They essentially shut down and it doesn't matter how much your body produces if the levels that it's receiving from the from the outside sources are so much higher, like by leagues higher than what your body would normally use in regulation. Wow. So it kind of sounds like almost your entire body almost aches to have that drug in your system one way or another. Exactly right. And we see the physiologic effects over time. Um, we know for fact that people who have been maintained on an opioid, they have higher risks of heart disease and heart attacks. They have uh, higher rates of, of uh, a tooth decay because it changes tooth decay? because it changes your uh, your salivation. It changes your your cravings and desire for sugar. Actually, oh. so people so that who would cause weight gain then so, too exactly. So it causes weight gain as well. Huh. Um, it changes your immune system. There are really some really interesting studies that looked at how a patient was anesthetized when they were having cancer removed from the body because your immune system is your first defense against cancer. And patients who had received an opioid actually had higher rates of recurrence of cancer versus people who had had some kind of regional anesthetic, meaning that region of the body was numbed instead of relying heavily on opioids. Oh, hold on. It how long has this been known? That's, that blows my mind. I've never heard this in my life. It's, it, these, are, these are not new studies. I mean, these have been around for years. This is not new? This is not new, yeah. Guys in radio world, I, this is my first time honestly hearing this right now. Like, uh, and I've known Donish for a little bit, so this is, I'm, I'm processing this right now. Wow. Well, the, the theory being that when a surgeon is going out and taking out cancer, well, you've got a ton of cancer cells now mobilized in the bloodstream. Well, where do those go? they get seeded all across the body. And the reason you don't get these, these incredible rates of cancer um, metastases after surgery is because your immune system is kicking into gear and it's recognizing these cancer cells as abnormal cells. And so it attacks them and it, and it digests them. Well, if you have a medication on board that suppresses the immune system and you're relying on that immune system to catch those cancer cells or be like the, the filter that catches these cells before they sit down on a different part of the body and seed and, and, become, and grow, then the theory is that um, we're hindering your body's ability to keep up or, or complement what the surgeon's trying to do. Wow, I'm blown away by that. The other one that a lot of people don't realize is how much of an impact it has on your your sex hormones and your sex regulation. So it's a known fact that people who have been on high-dose opioids 
or who have had a uh, long exposure to opioids, they'll actually have a suppression of their testosterone and both men and women produce testosterone. Well, the impact of that is testosterone is a, is a driver of libido. It's a major functioning hormone for erectile function, meaning when people get turned on, both men and women need the erectile body to feel, um, feel uh, desired or desirable for sex. And so when you have hormone suppression as a result of chronic exposure to opioids, you actually have higher rates of erectile dysfunction, you have lower quality of life because people just don't feel themselves, particularly in that, in that very intimate space. They don't feel who they've always known themselves to be. It accelerates the aging process of sexual decline. This sounds like it's the worst possible drug you could be on with all of these side effects. So it's, it's not a terrible drug. It has its role in their definitive value. There's definitive value to its presence, but it just make it just takes a moderated approach, and that's that's kind of been the the pendulum swing. Is that the difficult, the most difficult place to be is middle of the road. Like it's very easy to say these are the these are the scourge of medicine, and they've destroyed so many people's lives. Therefore, it has no purpose in so many of the conditions in which we use it for. And it's very easy to say, this is opiophobia, and there are all these people suffering, and they really need access to these medications. But the right answer is neither extreme. It's really a middle-of-the-road road, um, position. And that's always the most difficult position to explain to people because it's such a polarizing topic. People are, I mean, if we think about our purpose on, and on Earth, we can all agree our purpose on Earth is not to live in excruciating pain. Whatever the purpose may be, it's not to have this unending suffering. It's to maybe have hardships, maybe hit some hard roads, but to grow from it and evolve, and we're not allowing that to happen. Um, we're, we're taking these positions where it's all or none in either direction. It's either full liberal use of opioids or no opioids at all. And there's this middle ground that's very delicate and hard to identify because it is a personalized process. Well, now you got me really thinking because there's so many elective surgeries going around, orthopedic ones. My daughter just had an ACL surgery not too long ago, as an example. And if you're given opioids after an orthopedic surgery, I have some concern for either addiction or dependence. What should a person who's in the state do? Well, there's a great group up in University of Michigan, and they've been doing um, phenomenal research in identifying how many, how many individual pills do people take after surgery um, versus how many are they given. They're looking at what are the rates of opioid dependency and opioid use disorder after surgery. And their studies are, have, have been phenomenal. One of the um, there's a, a physician there named is Chad Brummett. He was a fellow when I was a resident over at Johns Hopkins. And he's, he's been one of the main authors of all these studies. And they found that 6.5% of every single surgery, regardless of how invasive, how aggressive it was, 6.5% of these people will end up in, with opioid dependency oh, wow. after surgery. Uh, and that the number of pills that, are pe that people are getting after surgery, often it's 30, 60, 90, 120, sometimes 240 pills. 
And when they surveyed people to find out how many pills were used on average, the numbers were staggering low compared to what was actually being prescribed. Whereas people would get 120 pills, they'd only use like three of them or 12 of them. I mean, like, like an order of magnitude less than what was actually prescribed. So what should uh, somebody do if they're about to have a surgery? So most often, the, the, the most acute period of pain is the first 72 hours. And if you can bridge them in that time frame, most importantly, if you can prevent the nerve signal from being received at the spinal cord before the pain signal is, is processed, you can reduce the sensitivity of pain quite a lot. Um, if, if you have regional anesthesia or epidural anesthesia, neuroaxial is what it's called, that's the best way to prevent the onset of that pain. If, however, that's not accessible, then the next best bet is to limit the use of opioids afterwards. And typically, the first 72 hours is the most important. After that, it's very important to quickly start tapering off as much as possible. And if it's not getting better, then at that point, you'd want to see somebody who's more well-versed in understanding acute pain to figure out the best ways to calm it down. So it sounds like for people who are in this particular scenario, they need to take your instructions and have that conversation with their anesthesiologist and surgeon then, huh? Absolutely. That's where I feel like uh, the attention to managing pain really needs to go, is focusing on ways to address this in a more holistic, thoughtful way. Okay. Well, Dr. Donish, I think we're near the end of our time right now, and one of the things that I really appreciate is just how insightful you are on this, and it's even going to help me with my own family for the next time that they have surgery, because I got three athletes at home. (laughs) It's happening. Well, maybe not. We'll talk about that at another show why surgery might not be necessary. We look forward to hearing from you and your comments. Uh, If you like our podcast, please leave us some comments, and look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, everyone. I'm Dr. James Escaloni. And I'm Dr. Donish. We'll see you around. Bye.